Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to just make a special invitation to our annual meeting tonight. God is up to something. Even in the midst of this pandemic, there are some amazing opportunities that have been granted us in the past year, and there's some great things on the horizon. So we would love for you to join in with this. We also do some very uh, important things for our church. We, we have certain positions that we elect uh, that have to do with uh, those who serve on the governing board. And tonight we have a special uh, election in that we, we have an individual who has gone through a year of elder training and has felt the call of God to be an elder in our church. And the church uh, votes and approves that this person is, is one who's, who has the hand of the Lord on him for eldership in the church. Very important moment spiritually for the future of our church. So we'd love for you to be a part of that. The other thing that, that I want to invite you into is our, our head elder, Rob Chen, is just an amazing head elder. He, he has led our church and pastored and shepherded as a head elder in such wonderful ways. And he loves to get together with any of you who are interested in membership. That's next Sunday at 1 o'clock on a Zoom meeting that he'd love to answer any questions you have. And he'd love to, to invite you into a deeper relationship and come under, under the spiritual covering of our elders as, as a member of the church. That's next Sunday at 1 o'clock on Zoom. So we've been, uh, been doing a series as we start out 2021. And in this series, I've really been trying to get you to think on, in the midst of any crisis, how do you build an unshakable life in Christ? And the one that I'm pointing you to is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul lived his life so built on Jesus that he was able to say, as I imitate Jesus, imitate me. Now, if you think about the life of Paul, it's pretty outstanding. Here is a, a Jewish rabbi. He was becoming one of the superstars of the rabbinical world. And yet when he met Jesus... Everything that he had been working for in his religious endeavors and zeal was met in Jesus, and he counted everything he had done before Jesus as loss. As he built his life on Christ, as he said his yes to Jesus in every way that Jesus was leading him, Paul established not churches in the Jewish world, but here this Jewish rabbi established churches in the Gentile cities of the world. Every city that he went into, from Asia Minor, as he moved into Europe, every city he was able to raise a life-giving church that consisted of very Jewish religious people, very Greek, very Roman people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. There were slaves who were worshiping with masters. There were rich with poor. There were women with men. Everything was being turned upside down 
by this amazing gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul was planting churches. He got so dangerous to the Roman Empire that Caesar himself had him arrest, wanted to have him arrested and wanted to have him executed. At one point, when Paul was released from prison, he was able to go to Spain and spread the gospel all, all the way into the Spanish territory. Some scholars say he made it all the way to Great Britain. Here is a man who built his life on Christ, and Christ built his church through this man. And it wasn't just an ordinary church with one ethnic group and one religious group. This was a man who was able, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the goodness of the gospel of God, to come into any city and bring people from diverse backgrounds and have them connect in a super meaningful way in the church of Jesus Christ. He was so dangerous that Caesar eventually had to have him killed because he wasn't just dangerous to Caesar. He was dangerous to the kingdom of Satan. In some ways, you may, you may say, well, Mike, I don't really aspire to Paul's life. And yet Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Not only that, but Jesus himself said, the things I do, you will do. If there's a gap between what you're doing now and what Jesus did, then there's more for you. And I think that that more is expressed in Paul's writings in Romans 12. We've been looking at it together. We're looking today at verses 3 and, and following, I think through verse 8. Now, this is Paul talking very plainly about how to build your life in Christ in such a way that no matter what's going on around you, it's an unbreakable life in Christ. Would you read it with me? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, in service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So as we come to this part, I want to remind you a little bit of what we've looked at so far. Paul has made really clear that if you're going to build your life in Christ, you cannot let the world squeeze you into its mold. But rather, you have to renew your mind. You have to go after the lives that have built your identity or your sense of security. You have to go after those things and begin to renew your mind with the truth. And one of those truths that Paul says is that it is an adequate or uh, an appropriate response to what Jesus has done for you that you yourself become a living sacrifice for Jesus. Now, the, the point of this 
is not so that you will make sacrifices. God doesn't care about your things. He gave you your things. He can take your things away from you. You giving him things is not your sacrifice. He's not looking for your things. He's looking for you. See, what it's saying is he doesn't want you to make sacrifices. He wants you to be the sacrifice. And in some ways, if you're not actually being the sacrifice, then whatever you're not willing to give up is more your true God than what you say your true God is. And so the idea is, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But having understood what Jesus has done for you, then you begin to decide, Lord, I will be a living sacrifice for you. I won't just make sacrifices. I'll be the sacrifice. And then Paul goes on and he says, from that place of the renewal of your mind, the first thing that he says to do is that you've got to get it right about your own thoughts about yourself. One of the biggest things that any of us are doing, whether it's we're doing it, I just lost uh, the screen back there. There it is, it's back. One of the biggest things that any of us are doing is that we're trying to realize or we're trying to present a sort of consistent sense of self so that in a way that we know exactly who we are, we know what we're worth, we know, you know what we do, we know all of these things. And Paul is saying, if that sense of self is not grounded in your identity in Christ, if that sense of who you are is not settled, then you're not seeing clearly. As a matter of fact, it goes so far as to say, if you haven't settled that sense of self in Christ, then you do not have sober judgment. So he's basically saying you have self-intoxication. And, and we see this. We see this in bitterness. You see this in resentment. You see it in unforgiveness. You see it when you worry. You see it when you're angry. All of those are manifestations that I haven't settled my sense of self. And others can shake me. Others can come into my life and break me. Circumstances can shake me because I haven't settled who I am in Christ. I'm still thinking that if I just, if everybody treats me, if everybody believes in me, if everybody acts towards me in the way that I think they ought to act, then I'll have a settled sense of self instead of realizing that is giving away the very foundation of your peace. One old, one old hymn writer said it this way, a heart at leisure from itself. Now listen to that for a minute. You see, when you have an intoxicated self, it can't be at leisure. It's always got to be scheming. It's always got to be manipulating. It's always got to be doing something because you have to keep proving yourself. You have to keep the, the loud voices inside of you at, at bay. Or you have to keep other people happy, other people approving of you. If that is so, then your heart is not at leisure from itself. The heart is restless. And a restless heart has no space for sympathy, for charity, for love, for joy, or anything else. You see, a restless heart cannot have peace. Are you tracking with me? 
Would you just say that phrase with me? A heart at leisure from itself. That's really the goal that Paul is getting at. Another way of looking at this is the goal of God in your life is that you would be so clear in your vision of Jesus that you become self-forgetful. That you're so convinced that you are safe. You are so convinced that you have worth. You're so convinced that you're loved by Christ and protected by Christ that you are safe from any other person and your heart is at leisure from itself. Being able to say, I don't have to protect myself. I don't have to provide for myself. I have the greatest protector ever. In some ways, many of us only allow Jesus to be the Savior when we die instead of the Savior in every moment of our life. And the truth is, he's a far better Savior than you are. And until your heart is at leisure, you're not letting him be your Savior. Let me put it, are you tracking with me in this? So one of the ways that this expresses itself is it in, in this kind of damaged and bruised ego that becomes protective by pride. Even Christians develop, or maybe particularly Christians, develop a sort of false humility. Again, any kind of false humility is a self-obsession. People get mad at me, but if you say you're shy, you're obsessed with yourself. If you're constantly putting yourself down, you're obsessed with yourself. That is not humility. That is more and more obsession and intoxication with self. If you can't receive compliments, you've got a self-obsession. Now, my wife is an incredibly humble person in so many ways. And if you want to compare humility, mine to hers, she'll always win. She would never tell you that, but I will. But she has this one area. And it's been with us our whole marriage. We've been married 40 years. And 41 years ago, when I fell in love with her, I looked at her and I said, you are the most beautiful woman in the world. And she said, no, I am not. And I said, are you calling me a liar? And it started a fight like nothing else. And we almost broke up. I'm like, how in the world can I have, you know, how, can I use what my best charm is on her if she blocks me at every step? <laughs> And even to this day, it's so interesting. I'll see her when she gets dressed and stuff. I say, honey, you look beautiful. And she'll go, really? And I'm like, can't you just receive it? This is what I think about you. This is the way you look to me. But it's so interesting. Here is a person that I respect more than any other person and yet struggles with this area because she sees her faults. She sees where she's not perfect. So what I see is not what she sees. So when I say, here's what I see, she can't even receive it because she's so focused on where she's imperfect. She'll kill me when I get home. That's all right. Because <laughs> she's watching this right now. Are you tracking with me, though? Yes. That's not humility. 
As a matter of fact, it's a resistance that holds you back. And anything that holds you back is a lie. And you see, part of it is to begin to understand what Paul is saying here. If you're really going to be fully taking advantage of all you are in Christ and all the Spirit has for you, you cannot have your mind centered on lies and be able to live in the truth. A lie will never be defended by the truth. Lies are very complicated. So part of it is you have to come to this place and say, okay, I can see my faults. I can see my limitations, but that's not the basis of my identity. The basis of my identity is not found in my performance. It's not found in my looks or any other strengths or weaknesses that I have. The basis of my identity is in Christ. Now, what Paul is saying here and what he's making really, really clear is that you and I share a common identity. So if I can accept my identity, now I can look at you and start seeing your identity. And it becomes a world of difference in the way I treat you when I recognize I have this identity in Christ. It has made me safe. It has made me significant. It's given me acceptance and love in an unconditional way. So now I'm being treated that way. I have that identity. Now I look at you that way. How is it in the world that the church has not been very good at this? Uh, I'm going to be personal with you for a few minutes here because you don't have a choice. I have the microphone. (laughs) This has been one of the most difficult sermons for me to get ready for. Because every single day God has been reminding me of how hurt I am by the church. I've been listening to songs and immediately someone's mean and cruel and cutting words have come to me. Or situations where I thought it was one way and someone betrayed me. Churches where I gave my best, but I was treated as if I was a horrible, awful person. And the pain of the church is more deep for me than the pain of any other person or the hurt that any other person has given to me. But you see, what Paul is about to say is that you can't be you until you know who you belong to. And you don't just belong to Jesus, though you belong to Jesus. You belong to his body. His church. And His church belongs to you. And the only identity that any of us has that's eternal is the identity we have in Jesus. And yet, I grew up, I grew up in segregated Mississippi. And I went to a Presbyterian church. My mother was Presbyterian, so we went to the Presbyterian church. It was all white. It was all one political party. It was all, you know, pretty upper class, upper middle class. We were the poor people that they let in. It was interesting because 
they didn't want anybody in that church that didn't look like them. They didn't want anybody in that church that didn't have exactly the same beliefs they had. They didn't want anybody in that church that didn't agree 100% with everything about them. And just blocks down the street from the church where I grew up, there was a black church. And you would think that there was no connection, that there was no identity that was common, that there was nothing about those two churches that were even of the same faith. And yet Paul is saying here, we belong to each other. That, that without knowing it, if anybody in that church I grew up in, if any of them belonged to Jesus, they belonged to that black church. And if anybody belonged to Jesus in the black church, they belonged to the people in the white church. Because it wasn't the common identity of culture or race or skin color or language. It was the common identity in Christ. And Romans 12 was written to people who were not in common in politics, in economics, even in their religious backgrounds. They were diverse. And yet Jesus was coming and saying, it doesn't matter where you come from. From now on, you belong to me. And if you belong to me, they belong to me, and you belong to each other. Now, even in that day and time, that was a sacrifice. If you were rich, you never associated with the poor. If you were a master, you never associated with the slave. If you were Jewish, you never associated with Gentiles. It has always been the will of Jesus to break every chain, to break every barrier. Now, why this is such a tough message. Can you advance that for me, Stephen? Hopefully none of you are going to sleep. The computer is for some reason. <laughs> So here's what Paul says. Where do you belong, he says. Look at what his word says. Though many, we are one body in Christ. And then he takes it a step further. See, I think people pass over this next phrase. Individually, you are members of each other. <laughs> in other words, I don't belong to me. You don't belong to you. I belong to you, and you belong to me. You can leave today, go to another church, and you'll still belong to me. And I'll still belong to you. See, I, I believe that we are supposed to follow the laws of the country. So the law of the state of New York is we have to have members. And members have to vote about property, and they have to, you know, elect officers, and they have to do all that kind of stuff. But let me just tell you what I think theologically. If you're a member of Christ, then you're a member of his church. If you belong to Jesus, then you belong to his church. But here's the scary part. 
if you belong to Christ, you belong to us. And we are scary people. I mean, do you think about what I'm saying right now. Even to say the word, I belong to you. I know how messed up some of you are. And that means if you've got all your act together and you're doing well economically, you belong to me. But it also means if you're at the lowest point of your life and you're dysfunctional and dysfunction is going on, you still belong to me. And I belong to you. I can't run away from you because you're unhealthy. Now, some of you will take advantage of that. I get it. But you have to know this. I speak truth. So when you come with your unhealthiness, I'm going to say, that's unhealthy. Because if we belong to each other, I have to speak the truth or I'm not being loving. And I can't be loving if I don't speak the truth. So it can't be that I just enable your dysfunction. Because you belong to me now. And I belong to you, and I want you healthy. Do you know what godliness really is? It's wholeness. It's health. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, all of those things. And so what we should want for each other, and why we are willing to actually belong to each other in such a deep way is because we are moving towards health together. Can I say it this way? If, you're still, if you still are obsessed with self, you will never belong to anybody. Because you'll always have to hold back. See, that obsession with self is happening all over our culture right now. Do you understand what's happened and what's being squeezed into each of us is you don't belong to anybody but yourself. And so there's a self-obsession. I belong to myself. And you hear it all the time. I need some me time. I need some self, you know, self-care. Now, is that wrong? No, not totally. But listen, if me time is I'm going to draw on me, I'm drawing from an empty tank. If self-care is doing what I think is best without regards to where I'm connected and where I belong, then self-care becomes more obsession with self, which only becomes more destructive. C.S. Lewis had a very powerful thought about this. He said, if you pursue happiness, you will never find happiness. If you pursue righteousness, you will find righteousness and you will find happiness. Jesus said it this way. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So if when you go, I'm going to have me time, but you're not seeking righteousness and you're not seeking the kingdom, then God is not obligated to add anything to you. But if you say, Lord, I'm tired, I'm stressed, but I'm seeking your righteousness. Then he says, I can fill you with righteousness and I can, I can give you the encounters you need with happiness. But again, I have to get to this place where I belong to Jesus, not to myself. 
And this is not the easiest of things. This is where the past hurts of people in the church make it difficult for me to make this sacrifice. I can't simply say, okay, I believe in this concept. No, I have to make this a commitment of my life. I don't belong to me. I belong to you. And you belong to me. And what that means is I can't exclude people. I have to have this inclusive attitude that if you belong to Jesus, I belong to you. You belong to me. And this this idea of keeping ourselves back is really, really counterproductive. It limits you. (laughs) Are you tracking with me a little bit on this? So my first pastorate, I was 24 years old, still in seminary, and somebody let me have a church. That was probably crazy. But uh, I became the pastor of this church. Everybody in the church was 55, 58 years and older. So my first, you know, my first big decision, I had, I had four elders. Uh, the youngest was 58. Uh, the oldest had Alzheimer's. So it was rough. I mean, I'm telling you, it was rough. So I make a decision that I think is a good decision. So one of the elders, 71-year-old elder, came to my house. It was a couple days before Christmas. He came to my house and he goes, I just want to talk to you about the decision you made at the board meeting. I, I said, okay. And he goes, I just want you to know those other two elders are unspiritual. They do not even, I don't think they even know Christ, that kind of thing. He said, you need to always go with me. And then he gave me a check for $150. I want you to know I can be bought, okay? That's a, no. I did cash the check, I will say that. That was my salary for weeks or whatever, you know, so I, yeah, okay, anyway. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm 24 years old. So this guy was, the guy who was 71 who gave me, you know, gave me the money, he had been a spiritual leader in the community. But you know what had happened? When people would die, he would go to the widow And he would buy the widow's land for a quarter of its value. And he would basically say, God's telling me to do this. And so those two elders began to oppose him because they said, you're being hypocritical. You have this public image of being a spiritual person, but you've been stealing from the widows. So they had a legitimate beef with him. And they they were very hurt by his actions. And he continued in kind of a pompous spirituality. Well, again, I'm 24 years old. And I'm like, Lord, what do I do? This church is, is damaged in such a way that I, can, I don't know what to do. And the Lord began to speak to me. Now, I didn't know it was the Lord. I thought I was being smart, but it was really the Lord. And he said, go sit with each one of them for hours before any meetings and hear their hearts. So I would go and I would drink coffee with them or tea or whatever. And I'd sit and I'd say, what's on your heart for the church? And they would start spilling their heart. Because you see what had happened is the the death of spirituality in their generation 
had created and magnified a death of spirituality in their children, which had now made it to where their grandchildren had nothing. And they wept before me about the lack of faith in their grandchildren. So I heard this, and I felt like the Lord was moving me to action. So I, so I did preach on Sundays, but instead of doing other things, I started doing children's ministry. And I did youth ministry, and I did all of these things. And there was no one else but Lisa and me to do it. And so I started doing it, and soon we had 40 and 50 and 60 kids, which is amazing because the town itself had 100 people. So what was happening is people were coming from the whole county. They were coming from all over. And guess what happened? As the kids got saved, their parents started coming to church and their parents got saved. And so I just, in a way, I was given the discernment to bypass the split and say, what do we have in common? And what they had in common is a love for their grandchildren. And when I left that church, the kids, the grandkids, and the grandparents were all worshiping and ministering together. Are you hearing me? I'm not telling you something that doesn't work. I'm not saying it isn't at a cost. You cannot belong to Christ and hold back emotionally, spiritually from those you belong to. You can't hold back because they hurt you in the past. It means you haven't dealt with forgiveness and you're still somewhat intoxicated with self. Does God take this seriously? Yes. Do you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira? So here it is, the very first century. It's a church on fire with the Holy Spirit, birthed in Pentecost. You know what's happening is the people are so in love with Jesus that they're also so in love with the church. And they start selling everything they have because they say, I belong to you, you belong to me. If you have needs, then I want to meet your needs. And it got to be a pretty big thing because people would take, they'd sell all their property, they'd sell everything, they'd bring it to the feet of the apostles. And the apostles would have to distribute it so that everybody's needs were being met. It's an incredible story in Acts chapter 2 through 4. But there was this couple who wanted the glory, but didn't really want to surrender all. And so what they did is they, they held back. But they played like they were given everything. <laughs> And as soon as Ananias came in and lied to Peter, boom, dead. His wife came in, repeated the lie, boom. The same guys who carried out her husband carried her out. I don't think that story is preached very often. And yet God says, when you're holding back, when you're holding back, it's a serious, serious thing. You may want to miss the membership meeting tonight. Because I guarantee every one of us in here is holding back. We're holding back because we're afraid. We're holding back because we want control. We're holding back because maybe people will misunderstand us. Maybe people will hurt us. 
but every single one of us reads the same scripture and we hold back. We are members of each other. We're not just members of those who have it all together. We're members of those who are falling apart. We're, just, we're not just members of those who voted exactly the same way we did. We're members of anyone who belongs to Jesus. And you cannot villainize or make monsters out of people who don't vote like you do. The minute you do, you're expressing a level of self-obsession. You're expressing not sober judgment, but an intoxicated self. Because you see, people disagree on all kinds of things. But at the core is the question, do you belong to Jesus? Is it about what God has done for you in Christ? Or is it still about what you think you can do for Christ? Is my identity based on my performance? Yeah, one day I prayed the prayer, but now I've got to perform. If it's still you performing, it's not Jesus, it's you. And the church of you just doesn't work. It's not the church of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying this is easy. I've seen a lot of Ananiases and Sapphiras in, in my day. I'll sacrifice to you, Jesus, but I'm not going to give myself to them. I've actually heard people say, church would be great if it just didn't have people in it. I've heard people say, I love you, Jesus. I just can't stand your people. Fortunately, Jesus didn't say that about us. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the question becomes, do we know where we really belong? Even if you hurt me, I belong to you. But here's the problem. Every time you open up your heart to love, like we're talking about right now, you open your heart up to hurt because you're opening your heart up to people. Your heart becomes more vulnerable. The truth is that you cannot really lead an unstoppable life without a vulnerable heart and embracing your own brokenness. Scripture says that kind of love is worth it. Well, C.S. Lewis explains it probably better than anybody I've ever seen in the book, The Four Loves. He says, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So what does Paul say? Well, you're here for each other. There's something that happened, if you stay with me for a few minutes, there's something that happened in the 80s and 90s where there was the rediscovery of this whole concept of spiritual gifts. 
But somehow, even the, the way people went about spiritual gifts became very self-oriented. What's my gift? You know, of course I'm a prophet. And they put it on their business cards. And, you know, they start doing all this stuff. I was in a meeting, a prayer meeting about, you know, 15 years ago with all these college students. And all of them are saying, I believe I'm an apostle. And other people say, yeah, I just heard from the Lord, you're an apostle. I'm like, no, you're hearing their heart say, I want to be an apostle. <laughs> that wasn't the Lord. You know, understand, any gift you have is not your identity. It's not what makes you worthwhile. Any gift you have is grace that's given to you by God. It's given not as a deserved thing, but because God loves you and favors you. And he says, I want you to use them with each other. So let me explain what the gifts are. They are the ministry abilities of Jesus that the Holy Spirit gives to those who belong to Jesus. It's not your personality. It's not even necessarily your wiring. It's what Jesus wants to do with you to accomplish his ministry through you. As you yield to the Holy Spirit, you will realize he's giving you his ability to do things and to impact the world in a way that only he can. And it's fascinating to me because I, I, I've been preaching since 1983. And it, I always work hard on sermons. I try to craft my points and the information and everything. And I have had these sermons where I crafted it so well and I, I just put it all together. And I was so proud of it. And afterwards, some, some of you would come up to me and say, you know that line that you said? That changed my life. And I was like, uh, that wasn't planned. I just said that in the moment. It was kind of an off comment. I want them to say how well I crafted the sermon, how perfect all the words were, how they understood it. And they're saying, no, it was just that one. And I'm sitting there going, that's the way it works with the whole spirit. It's not that everything you do is the ministry ability of Jesus, but when you start moving, even in the best that you can give, suddenly he augments. Suddenly he appears. And what he does, you do. And when he does it, the effect is so much greater. Well, how do I get there? Are you tracking with me in this? You hear me? Well, he says, Paul says, these gifts differ. He's saying, if, if, if your gift is to speak for God, then speak for God. That's what prophecy is. Speak to people what God has given you at a specific time. Be, be prophetic, he says. Do it. But then he says, if your gift is to serve, he doesn't say, then prophesy. He says, then serve. And don't be angry that he gave you the gift of service and not the gift of prophecy. I've been around people who've lived frustrated lives trying to be prophets and they suck at it. That's in the Greek, I'm telling you. But you know what? What they do well, they serve, they give. I've seen people trying to be leaders who should never be leaders because they don't have the gift of leadership. And it's not easy to figure out that he's not giving you that ministry ability. And if he's not, then you're just doing it in your own strength, which means you'll have very limited results. Definitely not eternal results. 
how do you figure out how to operate that? I belong to you. You belong to me. You know what it means? You see a need, you meet it. You don't sit there going, oh, do I have the gift for this? No, there's a need. Meet it. You, know, you want to know how twisted this gets? When I first came here, we had a, a custodian, and he was an older man. And, he, you know, men don't clean like women do, truthfully, I'll just tell you. And he was older, and he missed a lot of spots. And so some of the women would come up to me during a service and go, there's a dirt spot downstairs in the corner. Tell him to go get that. Do you not see how twisted that is? Why didn't she just clean it up? Instead of coming to me to tell him to go get it. There was a need. She belongs to us. We belong to her. Guess what? The dirt belonged to her. But she said, it's his job. No, it was her job because she saw it. All right, I've gone from preaching to meddling, right? You will not see your gifts until you meet needs. Can I just tell you, Jesus never went looking for demons. He went looking for people. And when he met people, he met their needs. And whatever the need was, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. He didn't do it without it being a need. You will not see your ministry gifts, your ministry abilities of Jesus released until you say, I belong. It's not a job, friends. It's not a position. It's action. Will you do it with me? I'm sorry I went long, but I, this one has been on my heart. I have never seen this in America. I have not seen it. I've not seen it in any of the churches where we were truly devoted to one another. This is what will, I believe, change everything. Will you stand with me this morning? This message um, is so different, I feel like, than anything I've really heard before. And it's, it's really been sitting on my heart this morning. And feel like there's so much to unpack in this that I feel like the Lord wants to reveal to us even this week but what a beautiful picture that the Lord has designed you to be part of a larger family and your responsibility is to meet the needs in that family to look for the needs to go how can I serve how can I help how can I take care of you I don't have to take care of me because you'll take care of me and I can take care of you Father, I, I just thank you that you are so big and so great and you have crafted us in such a way that you want us to be used by you. Father, it's, it's incredible to me that as we meet the needs, as we do what you put in front of us to do, you develop us and you call us into more. And you reveal things to us. As we make space for you, Father, you come and you fill those spaces. Father, I thank you that you have called us to be part of a larger body. 
Father, I thank you for this family that's looking out for me. I thank you that as we look to you, as we serve others by serving you, that your presence comes. And so, Father, we declare that we want your presence to come. We want your kingdom to come. And we want you to do whatever you want to do through us. Father, I thank you for your plan. And I give you all the glory and all the honor. And I thank you that through Pastor Mike's words, that there's so much more that you want to unpack in our lives. And so I ask that we would be open to hearing what you have for us. We give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name.